isn't God good? How many of you are ready to get into Romans 8 tonight? All right, let's stand together, can we? And um, we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into probably the summit of the New Testament, uh, certainly the summit of the book of Romans. I can't do chapter 8 in one sitting. If I did, I would not do it justice. So I'm going to take two. This is the only chapter. It's going to take me two weeks. Now, I want you to say something with me before we get into this. Next Wednesday, Kathy and I are gone. Now, this Sunday, this Sunday, Kathy and I are here. And so is Melba Joe, Lee, Beecham. And we're going to, she's going to sing like only Melba Joe can do. I mean, she's a, she has one of these opera voices. She sang at our wedding 31 years ago, and she can still sing. 32 years ago. Uh-oh. You know, leave it to me to do it. Do it. Well, all right. 32. Pray for me, Jesse. All right. But she's going to sing, and she's going to share for a few minutes on Israel. And then I'm going to preach on Israel. And it's a, it is a mind-blowing message because we're going to see how real it is that if you bless Israel, you'll be blessed. And if you curse Israel, you'll be cursed. It is a powerful word. But uh, that's this Sunday. We'll be here. But next Wednesday, we're going to be with James Robinson and many other pastors. Somebody's got to do it in Colorado. And we're going on a little uh, pastor's retreat. And it's all about, um, well, it's to retreat and just be with pastors, but it's also about um, America. We're going to be meeting, talking about, praying about, strategizing about America. So, but, uh, but we are not missing a Sunday, only one Wednesday, and that's next week. Then we're almost back to normal. Okay? So if you... Go tell somebody, we're not going to be here Sunday. God's going to strike you. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you right now for the Word of God. Thank you for this incredible chapter in the book of Romans. And we pray that you will bless it, use it, and speak to our hearts with it. Change us, Lord. Renew our minds in Jesus' name. Now, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, build the faith in my soul, in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, this is going to be good. You can be seated. All right, let me say, Jeremy, hello over there. And Ronnie, stand up there, Jeremy. This is Jeremy Lelick, who is the founder of ABC Counseling. And I've known Jeremy for a very, very long time. I couldn't believe, well, that's another story. But he's going to be, I, it looks like he's going to be teaching a class for six to eight weeks in the fall for us, and we'll be announcing that later. But a wonderful young man, and this older guy that's with him is Ronnie. No, I'm kidding, Ronnie. I look just like you. Stand up, Ronnie, and say hello. All right. Good deal. Ronnie is his uh, helper, and uh, so we're, I'll be introducing Jeremy again to you later. All right, let's look at this now. This is a great chapter. And last time in chapter 7, we saw that the law 
What was the law? Moses' commandments had the effect of exposing the exceeding sinfulness of man. That's why the law came. Remember, church, God didn't give us the law that we would, that we would fulfill it perfectly. He gave us the law to show us we couldn't. All right? So it's not that you throw the law out and say, well, okay, God showed us that we couldn't do it, and that's the only good the law was. No, all of our good laws have come from the Ten Commandments. But they had the effect, and Paul talks about this, of showing us the exceeding sinfulness of our sin and of our sinful nature. The law highlighted and clarified what sin is, what God considers wrong and right, and ultimately served as our schoolmaster to lead us to God's grace in Jesus Christ. Because after a while, we just said, I'm, I'm undone. What am I going to do? I can't fulfill this. And God said, exactly. Now let me save you by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves or your own performance. All right? Now, chapter 7 closed out with Paul crying out. Let's read this together because, boy, is this an alas verse. Can you read it with me? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this death? Anybody ever feel that way? Here's the way we've probably put it. Why do I keep doing what I'm doing? What's the matter with me? Well, the problem is sin. Now, he, he made this statement speaking of the endless battle between the law of sin and his members and the law of God, the constant tearing, the conflict that he genuinely wanted to follow. He wanted to follow the law of God, but found that something else kept pulling him down on the inside, and it was that law of sin. Now, as we leave the desperation of chapter 7, we enter the victory of chapter 8, and we now find the way of escape from the constant wearying struggle. How? What is the escape? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how God delivers us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now some have called Romans 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible. It's certainly the summit of the book of Romans. It's the top peak toward which the first chapters have climbed and from which the rest of the book flows. Romans 8. Chapter 8 begins with no condemnation. Hallelujah. No condemnation. And it ends with no separation. Look what he says in Romans 8, 1. Here we go. Let's read it together. This is the beginning of this great chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Give the Lord a hand for that. There's not any condemnation. That's great news after chapter 7 where he was saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. But there's a therefore. And when you see a therefore, you need to see what it's there for. Right? It connects. It connects 7 to 8. Now, the key words here are some of Paul's favorites. In Christ Jesus. It occurs in all of his epistles, that phrase, in Christ Jesus, and points to a new sphere into which the believer has been placed at the moment of conversion. Everyone in here who has placed faith in Christ, you are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Not near him, not around him, in him. 
The concept of being in Christ is not an easy one without a picture. So let me just draw you a picture tonight to help you understand what this means. And I think one of the best ones is Noah and the ark. So let's go to Noah and the ark for a minute. When the ark was finished, a perfect and singular way of escape was available to anybody that took it. I think a lot about Noah's ark these days. Because judgment was hanging over that generation. Judgment was near. God touched Noah. He said, I'm about to wipe out the entire world. But I'm going to give you an out. I'm going to give you an escape. Because you have been found righteous. That is a man of faith. Here's the escape. I want you to build an ark. And anybody who goes into that ark will be saved from the wrath that is coming. How can you live in our day and not think about that? Because wrath is coming upon this generation, ladies and gentlemen. Wrath is coming. Wrath has to come. Now watch this. It was available to anybody in Noah's day that took it. The invitation went out from God. Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I found you righteous in this generation. That was the gospel. The gospel message back then was get into the ark, get into the ark, get into the ark. In the ark there is safety from the wrath that is coming. All right. We know that this invitation had been extended to everybody of Noah's day because Peter informs us that Noah, not only a builder of the ark, but he had also been a preacher of righteousness so he had man he was hammering away with one hand and preaching with the other he preached for almost 120 years warning them preaching righteousness to them the entire time he was building the ark he was preaching warning exhorting get in take advantage of this wrath is coming in 120 years, not one solitary person believed him. Look what Peter said. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, there's Peter affirming the story of Noah and the ark and the great flood, but protected Noah, God protected Noah, and what does he call him? A preacher of righteousness. And seven others, eight people, were saved out of the entire generation. Everybody else died. Everybody else came under judgment. Now the Bible reveals that the ark was pitched, quote, within and without, with pitch. Well, what does that mean? This I did not know until I was studying for this series, but interestingly... The Hebrew word for pitch is kofer. And it's the identical word used elsewhere for atonement. Same word. It's defined, kofer, the word translated into pitch, in the Hebrew is defined as a redemption price, ransom, satisfaction. Here's the picture between the saved within the ark and the waters of judgment without the ark or apart from the ark, outside of the ark. Between those two were the wood and the pitch. Once Noah and his family were safely in the ark, we read that the Lord shut him in. I want you to catch this. One day God said, all right, it's time for y'all to get in. Now, he didn't say y'all, I did. I'm, that's the revised Texas version. 
But God said, Noah, go in. All the animals had already walked in. The snail finally reached the ark. He got in. Two of every kind were in there. And so Noah and his family go in. Now get this. They get in there and all of a sudden, all by itself, an invisible hand. Boom. Shut that ark. He didn't want it on Noah's conscience that he had been the one to shut it because guarantee you when it started to rain when the judgment began to fall they began to bang on that ark but the pitch had a way of soundproofing it the pitch which meant an atonement also had a way of soundproofing it they couldn't be heard in there they were in there with all the animals and with seven other or eight of them eight human beings and all the other creatures and within a couple of days, three days, probably didn't take real long, that thing began to, to tilt a little bit, creak a little bit, and all of a sudden it rose with the waters. And everyone out there began to run for the tops of the hills. Didn't matter how high they went, what tree they climbed, what mountain they scaled, it didn't matter because eventually it reached the top of the highest summit, nowhere to go, and the wrath took them. But catch this now. Here's Noah and his family in the ark. This portrays complete security. Complete security. They were in a boat that floats, and it missed the judgment. God did not say to Noah, for those of you who think you can blink wrong and lose your salvation watch this god didn't say to noah now Noah, i want you to take eight long spikes and drive them into the side of the ark so when the floodwaters rise you and your family can hang on for dear life and as long as you hang on you're saved but if you let go sorry charlie you're gone uh-uh he got him in he shut the door complete security Now, what it meant for Noah to be in the ark is exactly what it means for us to be in Christ. They were in the ark, you're in Christ. And can I tell you, God shut the door. God shut the door. And if you haven't been able to rejoice in that fact yet, I pray Revelation hits you right over the head tonight. Because you need to be able to rejoice that God has shut the door. You're in Christ. You're not hanging on to Christ. You're in. You're in Christ. It's the same picture. Now, in Him, we have been placed in a sphere where His wrath can never reach us, where God's wrath cannot reach us as it could not reach Noah. And we are secure. There is therefore now no more condemnation for sin. And there need be no more control by sin. So say with me, no more condemnation. And here's what Jesus did for you and me on the cross. Not only did he take care of the condemnation issue, because all your sin is covered, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. And he put you in Christ, and he shut the door. But he also said, now there's not, not only no more condemnation, but there's no more control by sin. Look what it says in verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, set me free let me say it again set me free from the law 
of sin and death. Now let's just camp here for a minute. Picture with me a coin falling to the ground. Do I have a coin? No. Somebody flipped me a coin. Everybody in here is broke. Really, literally, just throw it. I'll catch it. You see that? All right. Now, here's, here's a coin. Now, picture a coin falling to the ground under the power of the law of gravity. Now, we know gravity is here until Jesus comes. So if I let go of this, it's going to fall by the law of gravity. There is no way gravity goes away. Left to itself, it will fall like it just did. But now, it is powerless to, of itself, stop the downward pull to the earth. This coin cannot stop gravity. But before it strikes the ground, imagine someone reaches out an arm. All right, it's dropping. Something grabbed it as it dropped, my arm. And my arm is holding the coin tightly in my hand. And then I lift it higher and higher in defiance of the law of gravity. So we've got two things going on here. Gravity that's real and my hand that grabs it and pulls it up and defies gravity because I'm strong enough to pull it up. As a matter of fact, my arm is stronger than the gravity. Are you there, everybody? My arm is stronger than the gravity. All right? The law of the spirit of life in my arm overcomes the law of gravity the law of the spirit of life and energy in my arm overcomes the downward pull of gravity this does not mean that gravity has ceased to operate because it didn't but it does mean that a higher law has come into play we sin by nature because we are victims of the fall inside of every one of us there is a downward pull to sin there's a downward pull to break the commandments of God it's in every one of us but in Christ Jesus a higher law operates are you with me now the law of the spirit of life say that with me the law of the spirit of life see God's law of the spirit of life is stronger than the downward pull All right, now, deliverance from the control of sin. Well, what did I do? Did I go ahead of myself? Yes. And this law of the spirit of life sets us free from the lesser law of sin and death. So that's what we've been talking about here so much, so much of the time, about reckoning. When you get tempted to sin as a believer, what you do is you say, I reckon myself to be dead to sin, but alive to God. The downward pull is there, but the upward pull of the law of the spirit of life is stronger than the downward pull. Therefore, I am able to keep my... As long as I stay in the Word and stay in prayer and walk in the Spirit, which is what Romans 8 is all about, then the law of the spirit of life defeats the law of sin and death it defeats the downward pull 
So that where everybody else has no choice out there but to go and sin and mess up and live their lives and sin, you have a choice. And it is, well, yes, I feel that downward pull, but there is greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So I am one now, and so are you, who walks by the law of the Spirit of life. Now next, Paul says there should be no more continuance in sin. No more condemnation for sin. No more control by sin. And no more continuance in sin. Deliverance from the control of sin is never achieved by our own efforts to keep the Mosaic Law. We know that. That's what chapter 7 told us. It's a dead-end road. Look what it says. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature... God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. What made the law weak and what caused the law to fail? You and me. Because we couldn't do it. So what we couldn't do, God sent His own Son to do for us. Let's look at this. And what did He do? He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature. We don't live according to the sinful nature. Well, what do we live according to? The Spirit that lives within us. The law was weak through the flesh. Man in the flesh simply could not live up to the demands of God's law. But then Jesus came in the form of flesh. Just like ours, God wrapped himself in flesh, except that he never sinned. He never sinned. Nor did he inherit Adam's fallen nature, like we did, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and not man. He said to Mary, that which is conceived, or he told Joseph concerning Mary, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So his conception was immaculate. It was divine. Jesus never once yielded to a sinful thought. Can you imagine this? He never spoke a wrong word. He never committed an improper act. His whole life was a condemnation of sin in the flesh. Mary never had to say, that was wrong. He never had a shadow pass between him and God. He never had to go to the Father and say, forgive me. Think about that. That's amazing. Is it true? You better believe it's true. And if you don't think that's true, you need to check out your Bible. During his life, the Lord Jesus demonstrated the possibility of God's law being fulfilled in a human life. A life lived in the flesh, that is, in a body. Through the miracle of Christ indwelling the believer, the life that Jesus lived can now be reproduced, can now be reproduced in us by His Spirit. The life He lived can now be reproduced in you by His indwelling Spirit. This is why we so desperately need the Holy Spirit. 
Without the Holy Spirit, we would have been undone. But with the Holy Spirit, that's why it says I can do all things through Christ. Now watch this. The life that Jesus lived is not reproduced by us, but in us. As we walk not after the flesh, that means chasing after the flesh, but chasing after the Spirit. Oh, church now, this, this is getting, this is not a mud puddle. This is deep waters. But we've got to get our understanding enlightened. We've got to see what God did for us. Most Christians do not understand what I'm telling you tonight. You know why? Because nobody's teaching the Bible anymore. That's the tragedy. But watch this. We are, well, let me just move on. The Holy Spirit is to control the believer. No condemnation, no control by sin, no continuing in sin, but we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. When we scan chapter 7, we see that it's dominated by the words, I, me, and my. It's oh me, oh my, I, I, I. I'm in trouble, oh me, oh my. But not so for chapter 8. Chapter 8 is dominated by the Holy Spirit, who is mentioned in chapter 8 19 times. 19 times in one chapter. Why? Because Paul is saying, here's the way out. It is through Christ Jesus by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because His indwelling is stronger than the downward pull. All right, now watch. The new Lord, guide, and ruler in the believer's life is the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for the Holy Spirit. Now, let me move along here. First, the Holy Spirit is to control the mind of the believer. This is so important. This is so important. Catch this and don't miss this. And if you don't have the notes, make notes because the Holy Spirit is to control your thought life. Look what he says. Those who live according to the sinful nature, why are they living according to the sinful nature? Because they have their minds set on what that nature desires. That's what the Bible says. We're reading the Bible here. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Whatever you think about all day is going to determine whether or not you walk in the flesh or you walk in the Spirit. That's why I'm a broken record with this church and with my own life and with our staff. You ought to be in our staff meetings. I say this almost every single time to them. You've got to have your mind on the things of the Spirit. When you get up, you've got to have... I believe in getting up and setting your mind before you go out into that devil-infested, sin-infected world. You've got to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Well, how do you do it? The Word, prayer, prayer reading devotional materials that talk about Jesus, talk up Jesus, the things of the Spirit. Because whatever you set your mind on, your mindset will determine what you walk in. The mind of sinful man, look at verse 6, Romans 8, the mind of sinful man is death. But the mind, read this with me everybody, the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Anybody in here want life? Anybody in here want peace? All right, look how it happens. Whatever your mind is on. That's why there are some things, listen, I, all the time I will, 
turn off the TV because it, it's totally gone, pretty much. It's, it's a cesspool. I can tell if my mind is starting to get on carnal things, wrong things, fleshly things, useless things, futile things. And I'll just get up and walk away. And I'll open up that Bible and I set my mind. Look what he says. The sinful mind, the mind set on the things of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can, can it do so. Now let me ask you a million dollar question tonight. What is the mind of that world out there on? Let's spell it F-L-E-S-H. Now let me ask you another million dollar question. In light of the fact that we know that their mind is pretty much on the things of the flesh all the time, do you see peace out there? Do you see life out there? Do you see joy out there? What do you see? Tumult, chaos, murder, unrest, hatred, variance, strife. So say with me, set your mind. The phrase, have their minds set, simply refers to what you choose to think about, what you set your thoughts on. Or we can choose to think about those things that pertain to the flesh. Lustful thoughts, greedy, covetous, musing, grudges, gossip, and so forth. The only way to avoid a carnal mind is to choose to cultivate the mind of Christ. And it's not complicated. It's not anything that anybody can't do. It's just a matter of getting up in the morning and setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Now next, the Holy Spirit is to control the motives of the believer. Once he's got your mind, he's going to get your motives. But watch this. There's a huge difference between being in the flesh and being in the Spirit. Have you noticed that you can be in the Spirit when you walk out in the morning and get in rush hour traffic and you're in the flesh all of a sudden? Kathy and I fought getting in the flesh all the way here in that traffic. It seems like the devil puts the worst drivers in the whole city right in front of you on the way to church. Isn't that right? <laughs> but now, how many of you know there is a huge difference between being in the flesh and being in the Spirit? Look what he says. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Verse 8. Verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but you are controlled by the Spirit. If what, everyone? Read it. If the Spirit of God lives in you. If the Spirit of God lives in you, then the Spirit of God's goal in you is that your mind would be controlled by Him and that your motivations would be controlled by Him. That you would experience Spirit-led living. Not walking any longer in the flesh, tossed to and fro. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, uh-oh, well this doesn't sound real politically correct, does it? If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. So there's two kinds of people in the world. Those that have the Spirit of Christ and those who most assuredly do not. All right? To be in the flesh is to be motivated by the desires of the flesh. But to be in the Spirit is to be motivated by the Spirit of God. Again, I ask you, what is motivating our world every day when they wake up? They're chasing money. 
They're chasing immorality. They're chasing personal fame. They're chasing arrogance and pride. They are chasing the things of the flesh because they have not been redeemed. So they don't know any better. You're going to do, listen, if you haven't been born again, you have no choice. But the children of God are supposed to get up and put their mind on the things of the Spirit and chase after, pursue after the things that pertain to God. Be heavenly minded. I'm going to tell you, the phrase to be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good is totally wrong. The more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you are. Surrender to God, His Word, and to the Holy Spirit guarantees that our motives are going to be pleasing to God. Paul makes it clear there are two kinds of people, those that have the Spirit of God who are the saved and those that do not, and they are the lost. And lots of them are in churches. They come into churches all the time, but they don't have the Spirit of God. They've never been saved. They don't know Christ personally. They're in a religion and not a relationship. Now next, the Holy Spirit is to control the members of the believer. He says, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him, verse 11, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now, a lot of people think that's talking about the day you go to heaven. No. That's talking about right now. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is quickening your mortal body. All right? How's He doing it? Through His Spirit. And where is His Spirit? It's living in you. Wow. The words mortal and immortal always refer to the body. It is this mortal that shall put on immortality, the resurrection. And the same Spirit, says Paul, that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead is living in every believer. The Spirit is working mightily in you. The Word is working mightily in you. The Spirit has got you on the potter's wheel every single day and is, tra- and is changing you in the image of Christ. As long as you stay in the Word and stay in prayer and walk in the Spirit, you're going to bear fruit. There's no way to get around it. And you're going to pursue the things of the Spirit and not the things that the world is chasing after that he says bring death every time. Through these verses, or though these verses primarily refer to the resurrection of our bodies, they imply also the Holy Spirit can give us victory over the law of our members even now. Look what he says. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature. We owe nothing to the sinful nature to live according to it for if you live according to the sinful nature chasing the things of the flesh you will die that means you're going to reap spiritual death what's going to happen but he says if by the spirit everybody say this with me if by the spirit watch this now you put to death remember that gravity all right you got that downward pull but if by the spirit you allow the arm of the Spirit to lift you above that downward pull, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Every time you make a decision for God, 
leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit, not your own strength. Every time you make a decision for God, you reap life. Believers have an obligation, and it's spelled out in Romans 12. Here it is, therefore I urge you, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You've got to have a presentation to God of your body, or your body's going to get you in trouble. The believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he desires complete sovereignty over his temple. So you make a divine presentation. Lord, I give you my body. I turn my body over to you. I, my mind, my eyes, my ears, my hands, feet, everything, I turn it over to you. And God takes it. And then the Spirit of God says, all right, even though the downward pull is going to be there from time to time, I, by my, the arm of my Spirit, am going to lift you above it. And you're going to live by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus and not the law of sin and death. Now, once he has control of the believer's body, the Spirit of God can then impart victory over sins, which involve use of the body's members. You can't do drugs without abusing your body. You can't abuse alcohol without abusing your body. you got to have your members cooperating with a bad decision or you can't do it. So you've got to be, be a divine presentation. Now, he's going to go from here. Let's just switch gears a minute. He's going to go from here to talking about sonship and why all this is real for you and me. So let's look at it real quick. Sonship is an intimate personal relationship with God. I wish I could tell everybody that walks into a church door, I wish I could tell them, I wish I could be on TV to the whole country and have everybody's eye once and just say to them, Christianity is not a religion. It's not one of the great world religions, though that's what it's called in any dictionary or encyclopedia. It's not a world religion. It is a relationship purchased by the blood of Christ whereby we enter into intimacy with God the Father by the Holy Spirit as redeemed people of God. It is an ongoing relationship. It is not a book of rules and regulations that kill you. It is a, a life that is lived in relationship with God. That's what it is. It's not a world religion. Now, Paul next moves to the theme of sonship. He covers the test of sonship, the privilege of sonship, the witness of sonship, and the assurance of sonship. And we're going to skip right through these fairly quickly, but let them sink in because this is powerful stuff. So everybody say with me, I am alive by His Spirit living in me. I will pursue the things the Spirit of God can amen. And as I do, I will live through the Spirit in victory, peace, and fulfillment. And that's the way it is. Now, Let's look at sonship. First, the test. What is the How do you know if you're really a child of God? The test of sonship. Here it is. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's the test of sonship. What, what leads you when you wake up in the morning? What are you chasing in life? What are you pursuing? 
A day-to-day response to the leading of the Spirit indicates the one, capital O, to whom we belong. Because here's human nature. We all follow the one to whom we belong. You know, it's easy to look at someone's life for a day, and you can tell a whole lot about them. What are you chasing? What are you pursuing? Um, who are you following? What do you want? When it comes to a choice between sin or righteousness, do you just easily sin and never bat an eye? Or if you sin, does it convict you and you've got to get things right and you've got to get right with God? The one you follow reveals sonship or not. Now second, the privilege of sonship. Here's the privilege. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Hallelujah. The spirit that came to live inside of you, that Holy Spirit didn't give you a spirit of fear. But you received the spirit of what, everyone? Sonship. And by him we cry, what? Abba, Father. Okay? And he's talking about when you're born again, this is what happens. Because of our adoption into God's family, we have the privilege, it's a privilege, of addressing God as Abba, Father. He's my daddy. I'm going to preach sometime a message called, Who's Your Daddy? Because you you got one of two. You, you, your daddy is the devil, according to Jesus Christ. Your daddy is either the devil or your daddy is God. Who's your daddy? If you come to Christ and his spirit lives inside of you, your daddy is God because you have been begotten of him when you were born again. Born once, going to hell. Born twice, going to heaven. Born once dead, born twice alive. Born once lost, born twice found. Born once, your daddy's the devil. Born twice, your daddy is God. Now third, the witness of sonship. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I'll never forget when I got saved in juvenile home. Uh, I wasn't raised in Christianity at all. My, my family was completely secular. Never was a Bible opened in our home. Never was the Word of God taught in our home. We were totally secular. So when drugs came along in the drug culture of the late 60s, Jeff was looking for some kind of a spiritual experience. Closest thing I could find to it was drugs. I'm convinced people who get into drugs or alcohol or the occult are looking for a spiritual experience. They know something is out there more than what they have but they can't put their finger on it. So they go to drugs. They go to whatever, looking for that divine connection. And I had to get busted, put in jail, for selling narcotics as a 16-year-old to hear the gospel. But when I heard the gospel, oh, God nailed me right in my seat. I mean, I was so convinced that preacher was looking only at me. Only at me. And it made me so uncomfortable. Why is he looking only at me? They must have talked to him about me. I was paranoid too. <laughs> and yet, when he gave the invitation, I went with him into another room, blubbered for a long time, and then I prayed. And for the first time in my life, I had peace. And I remember something happening in me, and it was this. My spirit 
testify with the Holy Spirit that I was now a child of God. It was the witness. It's the witness of sonship. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that he's now our daddy, that something supernatural has happened. The Bible teaches that at the moment of conversion to Christ, God's Spirit testifies to our own spirits that we have become a child of God. Amen. Now, fourth, the assurance of sonship. The assurance. Now, he says in verse 17, Romans 8, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs. Everything Christ gets, we get. Co-heirs. Everything Christ gets, we get. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, I'm closing here, but I want you to understand what this means and what it doesn't mean. Sufferings. We don't like that word, do we? Sufferings. Paul emphasizes here our sharing in the sufferings of Christ. So he said this isn't just any suffering. This is the sufferings of Christ. We share in them. Well, what does that mean? He's not referring to the adversities common to all people, like illness, bereavement, or the loss of employment during a recession. He's not talking about any of that kind of suffering. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, they are the sufferings that come from following Jesus Christ, such as rejection, persecution, martyrdom. We are going to share, if you're a real, true son or daughter of God, You're going to share in the sufferings of Christ. Persecution, rejection, social ostracism. I read about three little girls. I'm going to close with this. Three teenage girls, beautiful teenage girls in another country where Islam rules. They had a Christian school. This was just recent. And this school was attacked by militant Islamic extremists. And they began to slaughter the children and the teachers in this school. And these three girls, actually, the, the article I read was written by a man who had seen them in the autopsy room. And they had all been beheaded. And he said, these beautiful teenage girls, the only crime they committed was being a Christian. The beautiful long brown hair, the beautiful innocent faces, He said, their eyes closed in peace, heads separate from bodies. They had chased them down and done away with them. Why? The sufferings of Christ. Sufferings of Christ. So don't be amazed if you pay a price, especially as our culture gets darker. You pay a price. Mockery, ridicule, rejection, ostracism, whatever it happens to be. You know what Peter said? Rejoice. For the Spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. All right. Sharing in his sufferings serve to assure us that we are his. Next time, future glory and more than conquerors. Can we stand? And and I don't want to steal this quarter. Whose quarter did I have? Oh, you're giving it to me. Okay, I received that. Hallelujah. (laughs) How many of you are thankful for the Word of God tonight?
Amen. Amen. Father, we just thank you tonight that the Spirit of God dwells in us and He is mightier than the downward pull. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to keep our spirit man strong, our minds set. Thank you for the assurance of sonship in that we suffer the sufferings of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we're in the ark and God has shut the door. We praise you for it. Now, Lord, help us to go make a difference in this world, in Jesus' mighty name. Why don't you take a moment right before we go and say, Lord, I dedicate my body to you. I make a presentation of my body, all that I am or ever will be. I present it to God. Yeah.